Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. We're live. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm joined with some by someone who's no stranger to the Jew3 Project, uh, who's a part of our team. Uh now, Dr. Vince Bontu. Welcome, Dr. Bontu. Hey, hey, thank you, Lisa. Good to be here. <laughs> Good to have you back. And uh today, this is something we've been talking about. We've had a number of people send us messages about this, the deity of Christ and the Council of Nicaea. Um, well, before we go into that, I don't want to assume that everybody who's watching already knows who you are. So just introduce yourself for people who don't know who you are, and then we'll get into uh, the count, the uh, meat and potatoes of today's talk. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, again, my name is Vince Bantu, and I'm, I'm here in my hometown, St. Louis, Missouri, from the Lou. And, uh, I'm a pastor here at Outpour Evangelical Covenant Church, uh, which is a multi-ethnic church uh, here, uh, right here in St. Louis. Um, and uh, and then also I teach missiology, uh, study of missions, cross-cultural ministry at Covenant Theological Seminary, um, and uh, which is a, a, a seminary in the Presbyterian Church of America uh, right here in St. Louis. And then also um, uh, I'm working on my first book. Uh, my interests are early Christianity. Uh, so I'm excited about this topic. I'm really interested in the early church, especially in the non-Western world in Africa and in the Middle East and Asia. So uh, that's, you know, I just love uh, traveling to those places, learning about it and sharing it with the church. Uh, working on my first book as being kind of an introduction to that. And so, um, um, yeah, excited to be be back, be back home here at Jew3. Jew3 feeling like home right about now. <laughs> and, and what was your PhD work in? Because uh, I always tell people, and I think I'm getting it wrong. I know it's early African Christianity, right? Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Yep, yeah, I got it. Uh, I got my PhD from the Catholic University of America uh, in Washington D.C. Because you know, I mean, this is part of the problem is that we, we as Protestants, we sometimes the Catholics and definitely the Orthodox, they're better at knowing history than we are. You know, sometimes we think that like you know. Uh, you know, the, Jesus gave us the, the New Testament and the Holy Spirit gave us the New Testament and there was the early church. But then it's like, you know, 1500 years. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters until you get to the Reformation. Um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, so, you know, anyway, that's so I, that's why I kind of had to go to a Catholic university to um, to really get into. But, yeah, they have a really good department over there. And they're, they're, it actually goes back to the beginning of the university itself. Uh, and it's, it's, it's called the Department of Semitic and Egyptian Languages. So basically what we do in that department is we focus on uh, early so languages of the Christian, what's called the Christian Near East. Like so early African, Middle Eastern and Asian languages, which are which is it's an interesting thing in and of itself, because it's just it, it, it just kind of makes it even it brings the reality home for me, even in a more powerful way. How much Christianity had so strongly pervaded Afri early Af ancient African society and Asian society and the fact that like if you were to go look at these languages because technically like my degree was a language degree right um, mm -hmm. but uh, when you when you're reading Coptic language the original language of Egypt or Giz the original language of Ethiopia or or old what's called old Nubian the the original language of, of Nubia during the medieval period 
if you look at those languages, like you almost, you can't even study those languages from just a purely historical or purely archeological perspective or linguistic uh, perspective. You have to get into Christianity because there is no, there hardly isn't any evidence in those languages that isn't Christian. So, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that like the Coptic language and Ethiopian language and cultures go together with Christianity, they're inseparable. Um, and so anyway, yeah, but that's, uh, that's what the, that's my long answer to what the degree was in. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I think that's helpful to build a foundation, uh, for what we've already talked about with Christianity, uh, and its roots in Africa. But also when we talk about the council of Nicaea and who was at the table and mm-hmm. the so-called, uh, the theories about how the deity of Christ uh, came to be because of the Council of Nicaea and kind of this conspiracy theory that a lot of mm-hmm. some of these black cults hold to, to kind of mm-hmm. uh, put out this myth that the deity of Christ was some kind of concoction from the council uh, mm-hmm. and is not really true. So uh, let's get into it. What, before we start with the dealing with the myths, what was the Council of Nicaea and how, what was the reason behind of the meeting? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the Council of Nicaea is known as the first ecumenical council of the church, and I, I even have a problem with that title in and of itself, but or that description. But we'll get into that. But basically, it's known in by Western Christians, by by Roman Catholics and uh, you know Eastern Orthodox and uh, and Protestants and you know Christians in the Western world or. Christians that have been westernized, uh, you know, by Western Christianity as the first major council in the church. It wasn't the first council in the Christian church. That's probably why I had a problem with that. But, you know, it's, it's what's called the first ecumenical council, which, you know, is basically supposed to mean that it was the first council that was convened by all of the church. And again, I mean, so I can't even, I can't even say it without getting mad <laughs> or like having problems with the way, cause even again, even how we tell narratives and how we tell history is telling uh, in terms of issues of oppression and white supremacy and patriarchy and all these kind of things. But again, that is, is known as that because it was the first council that involved a large majority of you know, the Christian bishops in the Christian world. But again, you know, uh, what we often speak of as the Christian world in that period is the Roman Christian world. And see, we don't often talk about, and this is where a lot of these cults come from, because, you know, I mean, you know, we have these, you know, these cults that are creating these conspiracy theories, but largely is because of the way that white Christianity has defined and told the story according to their history. And then people of color have just imbibed that uncritically without looking at the sources. And so we just tell the Western Christian, the Westernized version. But I mean, again, it wasn't the first council and it, and it wasn't even like, it's just seen as being like kind of the, the first major. And it was the, it was like the biggest council up to that time in terms of its scope and in terms of its geographical reach, but it didn't even include like even the majority of, the bishops that were invited to the council. Um, but I mean, it was convened by uh, Emperor Constantine. He invited, you know, over a thousand bishops and only about 300 of them came in the first place. And that, again, that's just in the Roman world. I mean, I say that to say that there was another uh, very large and very powerful empire operating in this time of the world, and that was called Persia. And Persia, see, again, in the church, we often just look at it from the Roman realm uh, lens. But Persia was just as large and just, probably larger uh, and just as powerful of an empire as Rome was. 
And they had Christians there too from day one. And there were already Christians in both of these empires. So most of the bishops that were at the Roman, uh, the Council of, Cal of Nicaea was, were bishops from the Roman world. And uh, the, the basic idea of it was in the year 325, uh, Emperor Constantine had just started kind of, you know, they, what they say, Christianizing the empire. Again, again, uh, another Western way that this is told, a Westernized way, is that Constantine was the first Christian emperor. Well, that's not true at all. And if you if you ever meet uh, an Armenian Christian, a, a Christian from Armenia, which is a Middle Eastern country, they'll be very quick to correct people on that. Uh, that Constantine was not the first Christian emperor, but actually Tiridates uh, the third, who was the emperor of Armenia, accepted Christianity, became a Christian, and uh, Christianized the Armenian nation ten years before Constantine uh, ever became a Christian, and uh, because Constantine was supposed to have become a Christian around like like 310 or 311, something like that. And so uh, 10 years before that, when Tiridates had become a Christian and, and Christianized Armenia, what was Constantine doing at that time? He was working for Diocletian. He was, uh, he was a, a commander under the uh, Emperor Diocletian, who was the Roman emperor before Constantine, who was responsible for the greatest uh, persecution of Christians in Christian history called the Great Persecution, which happened like in the late 200s, early 300s, where Diocletian was, you know, in the Roman Empire was going around killing Christians and uh, confiscating property and removing them from their positions in society and government. And, and, and Constantine participated in that, in persecuting Christians before he, you know, allegedly became a Christian. Um, but again, at that time, Armenia had already become a Christian nation. And, uh, and also, um, you know, uh, the Syriac speaking church centered in Orhoi or Edessa, which is kind of in southeastern Turkey and also embraced Christianity as the as the religion of that of that kind of, you know, that region. Um, so but anyway, uh, I'm, I'm steady digressing. But anyway, the, you know, to the question, the Council of Nicaea, right, uh, Constantine convened it in 325 after he had become a Christian. Uh, according to Eusebius, who was a church historian, says he became a Christian and started supporting Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. And then there was a, a, a question that came up uh, largely. I mean, there was a few issues that that the council was called to address. But the main issue was the question of Jesus and his status as being either, uh, you know, either being God, eternally uncreated, or whether or not Jesus was actually subordinate to God the Father and he was a created being himself. That was kind of the main question. There was another, uh, there was a few other things that the, a lot of other articles and things the council got into. Uh, another one is like the date of Easter, which is which was a um, another thing that was, you know, decided upon, but we can get into that later because it wasn't really, you know, necessarily decided upon because even today, Christians around the world celebrate Easter at different times. But the main issue was, this whole issue of whether or not Jesus was God. And there was a, there was a North African uh, priest named Arius, and he was from Libya, but he was a priest in Egypt. And he started teaching that Jesus was a created being, that God created Jesus. And this is another thing that I think a lot of these cults will miss is uh, they'll say, well, they'll say, things, you know, just silly things like uh, nobody believed that Jesus was God until the council of Nicaea. Like, no, actually, the Council of Nicaea was convened because one person uh, who stood out from the get-go started teaching that Jesus wasn't God and that he wasn't eternally, eternally uncreated. So that just shows you how much 
the belief that Jesus was God was prevalent in the early church from the from day one. Nicaea didn't create nothing. It just uh, was convened because it had to reaffirm that that belief that was already held and taught by Christians all over the world in Africa, in the Middle East, in in Europe. Uh, all all over the place, people believed Jesus was God, and it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't until because one person started teaching contrary to that that other people um, started you know and and he started to get some people following in his belief that G the famous phrase that went along with Arius was there once was a time when the sun did not exist, and uh, and he started teaching that. Uh, I mean, Arius believed that Jesus wasn't just a person, a regular human like the rest of us, but he believed that he was subordinate to God the Father, that God the Father is eternally existent and that um, and that he created the Son. And so uh, this was, as you can imagine, was rejected by the bishop of, 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 of Egypt at that time, Alexander of, 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 of uh, Alexander of Alexandria, um, which strongly rejected Arius' teaching. And uh, and then so um, and then the Council of Chalcedon, I mean of Nicaea, excuse me, was convened by Constantine uh, in order to settle this issue. And so they convened about 300 bishops attended this conference, this council in Nicaea, which was kind of like in the modern day Turkey. So it was a good middle middle ground for kind of that known world. Um, and then they the council decided that Jesus is the same essence. He is, uh, he is the same equality of God, the father, that Jesus, the father and the son are of the same stock. They're the same essence or the word, the word that was used was homoousios, that they are the same essence. And that, that became kind of the, the, the word in European and Greek. Well, at this time, kind of Greco Roman Christianity, that was kind of you know, almost became like a rallying cry. It was almost like, you know, like kind of like the fray, like Black Lives Matter. It was like the phrase that the rallying cry of this movement. But the interesting thing, we can get into this later. The interesting thing is that even though other Christians who were not Greco-Roman world or not Hellenistic, even though they believed in the full divinity of Christ, which was not invented at Nicaea, there's also there are examples, too, of them not necessarily using that word and not not necessarily using that term um, that, uh, you know, espoused the same belief that Jesus was fully equal, that he was God himself, but they didn't use the Greco-Roman Hellenized term that Western Christianity was starting to promulgate. Um, and so, uh, but, but anyway, that was kind of the decision and then uh, that was made. And part of the motivation for that council, even the council itself of, again, having to that point being the largest council in terms of numbers, wasn't the first council, but it was, you know, the largest one, especially in the Roman world at that time, um, it was uh, part of Constantine's overall desire. Again, he was, you know, he was a Roman general and then, uh, and then you know, became an, uh, one of the greatest emperors and founded Constantinople and named it after himself. And uh, then there was kind of the, that system in the Roman government where there was two capitals. There was Rome in the West and Constantinople in the East. And uh, he really, you know, again, started really supporting Christianity. Um, now we can get into this too, but his, his conversion, uh, if he even really was a Christian, was extremely gradual. And it was also very unclear if he was a Christian. And number two, if he was a Christian, what kind of Christian was he? Um, but, we, you know, we can get into that. But, but all that to say that one, th one thing is clear. Uh, whether he was a Christian and what kind of Christian he was isn't, as far as I understand, is not entirely clear. But one thing was clear is that he was a Roman emperor. And that was his real conviction. That was his real, you know, it was, I mean, uh, Rome, Roman, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, not unlike a lot of people in the United States today who, 
you know, make a religion out of being a, a citizen of the United States and there's American nationalism. And sometimes that can get up into the church and start becoming an idol and more important than being a Christian. But we ain't gonna get into that unless we digress further. But it was the same thing that started to happen because of Constantine and because of the way the Christianity started to be Romanized uh, 300 years after the church had already been growing. Um, and, uh, but then now Christianity starts to become Romanized. And a lot of that ha is because of constant is because of two things, because of Constantine and his love and his, you know, kind of pride in the Roman empire and that identity, but then also of some influential Christians, historians, especially and theologians who were pumping him up. And a lot of the people in the church just to, to basically, you know, like, just sign on fully to this Roman thing and this Roman identity and this Romanized Christianity. Like Eusebius of Caesarea is, you know, known to be one of the earliest church historians. And he wrote a history of the church, but he also wrote a biography of Constantine where he basically goes on just kissing his behind, basically the whole, the whole biography saying Constantine is great. And, you know, he's, uh, you know, and I mean, you can kind of understand because Christians had, especially in the Roman empire, they had been severely persecuted for so many years. And so to go from in just a few years, go from being severely persecuted in the Roman empire to now they have a, now they have a, uh, a Christian emperor. And so now they can start building churches and they can start, you know, you can understand why they would want to, you know, uh, I mean, it's sort of like how we in the black church, now that we're, now we have more freedom than we had before. Now all of a sudden we start by drinking the, drinking the, the, the Kool-Aid of white prosperity theology, you know, but I ain't gonna get into that either. You know, I'm just gonna throw that in there. But, um, but it's kind of a similar, it's kind of a similar dynamic that happens to where you can understand it. But then, um, also, again, you start to see this deeply Romanized Christianity. Start, I mean, in terms of architecture, start building major, massive church structures that are modeled after Greco-Roman architecture. Started uh, start modeling church uh, church hierarchy over the Roman government, uh, and then again using terminology like you know homoousios, which is like again Platonic Greco-Roman terminology that comes in and starts to define Christian theology. Um, and so, uh, so, you know, again, the idea that Jesus was God was not new, but, you know, it, to term it in that way, in a language that wasn't familiar with a lot of other people, it didn't necessarily communicate, um, you know, to other parts of the uh, parts of the world. Um, but again, it was all part of, uh, and I mean, uh, um, Peter Brown from Princeton University, uh, he makes this point uh, also in the, in his book, Rise of, the, of Western Christendom, is the way in which uh, this was the Council of Nicaea and bringing everybody together to decide on one belief on what the church believes and all that kind of stuff. That was part of Constantine's overall motivation to unite the empire and unite Roman, the Roman Empire and Roman identity and all that kind of stuff. And and since Christianity was becoming his new kind of patron religion, that creating a unified system of belief in his empire was just kind of a part and extension of that. So that was kind of the the, the motivation of it. <laughs> Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> no, it was, it was good. It was good. Um, when we talk about it being kind of the council being polluted by Constantine, how can we be sure that he didn't influence uh, these bishops in a way to to kind of create things in a sense? I, I mean, I think there's a number of ways. I mean, uh, again, first of all, 
I mean, I would say on the one hand, uh, he was deeply influenced. I mean, he's the one that convened the council. I mean, uh, the people who were at the council says that he like he came in and he entered with purple robes and he walked down the middle of the thing like he was a like he was a god. And so, I mean, he was the one that convened it. He was the one that. So, I mean, I think there's I think there could be two ways of approaching the question. Number one is how can we be sure that Constantine didn't fabricate the belief that Jesus is God? That's a whole other question again. Uh, but then but but. It's a, to me, it's a different question from how can we be sure that Constantine did not strongly influence the council? To me, those are two different things. I would say that the council, I mean, in many ways, it was his idea. It was his, it was his baby. It was his kind of gathering. And so he deeply was influenced in the council and he was deeply influenced in the proceedings of that council. Um, but again, the council, but I mean, but we have to get to the more foundational question is uh, how, how important and how formulative is that council for Christian belief? And Christian doctrine, and that's a whole other question. While he may have really counsel, uh, brought together and controlled in many ways, and uh, kind of was almost trying to step in like a pope, like he was an emperor, but all, almost kind of like a pope at the same time, which makes sense. And again, Peter Brown points this out: Roman in Roman religion, emperors were God, and so it, it would kind of make sense that he would want to have some kind of, you know, you, maybe he even thought he was like uh, trying to act like a pope and a bishop. And certainly later on, Roman emperors like Justinian and others did try to step into church affairs and control things. But again, that's Western Christendom. And that's, you know, again, that's why I'm trying to make these connections between American Christian nationalism, that white Western Christianity does have a history starting with Constantine of muddling the lines between politics and religion and kind of seeing those things as, as the same thing as coterminous and, and, you know, having national identity become an idol. But that's not the only trajectory. That's not the only history of the church. That was just the, you know, that was, that was this particular story. So he deeply influenced the council. But the question is, did he, did he, how much control or how much influence did he have over the idea that Jesus was God? And I would say very little because number one, there was already Christians from day one who were saying that Jesus was God. I mean, these people, you know, who were saying, oh, well, nobody believed Jesus was God until the Council of Nicaea. And, and you know, that was a, that was the white man. That was Europe, the Roman Empire imposing that and imposing that belief. That wasn't it. I mean, first of all, read the Bible <laughs> because, uh, you know, Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's very clear that the New Testament, you know, is attesting that Jesus is divine, that he's God. And so but second of all, you know, read church history before Nicaea. Irenaeus, they can read Tertullian, they can read um, Justin Martyr, you know, who, again, Justin Martyr picks up on when John in chapter one says that the Logos was God. He's talking, he's using a term from Platonic philosophy, you know, like Plato and Aristotle, and those guys, they talk about the Logos as being kind of this uh, emanation from the one or the monad or the, the first cause of existence. And so he's using that term, but he's placing it under the authority of, 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 you know, kind of the Hebrew Semitic Middle Eastern concept of God. And he's using it to describe the relationship of, of Jesus to the father. And, and in doing so, he's basically make, John is making it clear that Jesus is God, that the Logos was God. And so Justin Martyr picks that up in his writings. Um, and, you know, Justin Martyr was one of the earliest Christian writers and he lived right in the beginning of the second century into the middle of the second century. And he also clearly, uh, I mean, people talk about Logos theology that was really strongly developed by Justin Martyr, who's borrowing it from the Gospel of John or, or you know, kind of developing it from the Gospel of John, who makes it extremely clear that Jesus was, was God and that he was divine. And Tertullian is one of the earliest people uh, to use the term Trinity. 
And so again, people say, oh, the Trinity, that's a Western imposition. Well, Tertullian was North African. You know, he, was a, he was an African brother. He was a, a Berber-speaking North African brother who also wrote, you know, he wrote in Latin, uh, but he was a North African Christian who used the term Trinity uh, almost a century before the Council of Nicaea ever, you know, ever was. Again, it was only because one person, Arius, started saying Jesus wasn't God, that that was why that big council had to happen. And so, uh, and that's, I mean, that's, that's kind of how we still are in the church today. It's not till someone starts speaking something contrary or false that now we have to come up with an answer and a response. Uh, you know, it's sort of like how uh, Marcion, who was an early church heretic, he was the one, he was the, he, he created a, a new a Bible canon that excluded the Old Testament because he didn't believe that, you know, the Old Testament God was, was God. And so it was that that caused the, the, the church to have to come up with, well, what is the real canon? And, and so have to kind of give a response to that. So, I, you know, that in itself is, I think, a, a response we can give to these people um, when they say that, oh, the, the, the deity of Christ wasn't said. And so the Council of Nicaea is like, no, in fact, if anything, uh, the fact the, the the idea that Jesus wasn't God wasn't said until the Council of Nicaea, which is what uh, necessitated and uh, precipitated that that particular conference. And so, um, and so, uh, so yeah, I mean, again, that's so. In that regard, we can say Constantine really doesn't have much to do with, uh, and in fact, worked against that idea because again, this goes back to the question of you know what what kind, whether Constantine was Christian and what kind of Christian he was, because. Again, you know, and Peter Brown points this out and Timothy Barnes and other people that have worked on Constantine and his religion and his relationship to the church. Uh, again, is is number one, it seems, you know, really clear that his first love was the Roman Empire and expanding that and, you know, seeing Christianity as an opportunity to unite, unite the empire and to uh, around run one particular religion. Um, but also. Uh, Constantine was, uh, he wasn't baptized until like, you know, years after the Council of Nicaea. So he's, he's trying to rule this council as a bishop, but he's not even baptized. And again, in early Christianity, especially, uh, you know, that's a, that's a very important thing. And so, um, and the other important thing is that he, when he was baptized, he was baptized by an Arian. He was baptized by another Eusebius, Eusebius of Nicomedia, who was an Arian. He, he, the person who baptized Constantine did not believe that Jesus was God, that he was uncreated. And so, uh, you know, and so Constantine, um, you know, he didn't even he, he wasn't even it wasn't even clear that he even believed that Jesus was God. So how can how can a council that was that was called by a Roman emperor who himself likely did not even believe that Jesus was God? How could he be the one to have caused the belief that Je that Jesus is God? So uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't even it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who was at the council? And I'm I'm talking uh, kind of nation nationalities represented. Uh, who, especially of African descent uh, from, mm. the, from the continent of Africa, who was there? Who made up the council? Because there's this also this myth that it was just white white Europeans there uh, that mm -hmm. made up the council. So, what was the makeup of the council? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I I I. I I, I should I should say that there weren't um, there weren't that many. I mean, this gets into another question of whether Egyptians were black. There were obviously a lot of Egyptians there because Athanasius. So I mentioned Alexander of Alexandria, who was the first bishop who was really combating against Arius, and 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 he was before the council ever happened. So before Constantine ever came in and said, "Well, I'm going to just try to settle this issue for y'all." Um, and Alex, Alexander of Alexandria was defending the long-held 
belief that Jesus is God. Again, in all the early church historians, first, second, third century, were all saying that. It wasn't new. It wasn't nothing new. Uh, the belief that Jesus wasn't God was new. And so Alexander was already defending that idea, but then also after him, the, the, the Pope of Egypt after uh, Alexander was Athanasius. And Athanasius was really one of the main defenders of the, the doctrine of the, the, that Jesus is God. And he came after, he was also an Egyptian, uh, he was the Pope of Egypt. And so, uh, and so Athanasius and many other Egyptians were present at the Council of Nicaea. Now, I mean, do we call them African? Well, that's, you know, I, I, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a questionable thing for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, now on the one hand, obviously Egypt in this time was not known as Africa. Like, you know, Africa was a province of North, you know, the Northern Mediterranean coast, like what we now call Tunisia. That was the Roman province of Africa where Carthage was. And, and it was also like the whole region was called Numidia. So like where, at, where Augustine and Tertullian were from, that was called Africa in ancient times. But like Egypt, Nubia, Ethiopia, that was not known as Africa at that time. But I mean, you know, at the same time, un, without being anachronistic and understanding that historical delineation, I think that it can still be appropriate to use the term African in this larger sense. I mean, in the same way we, we might call, you know, kind of people in the Greco-Roman world European, even though the idea of Europe didn't develop till later either. Um, but then also, I think in a colloquial sense, when we say African, I think sometimes we might mean, excuse me, or we might mean black person. Uh, you know, that's what we usually think of. And then that gets into the question of were Egyptians black? Well, I don't think they were uh, in, the, in the way that we define black. Uh, they were definitely not white. <laughs> they definitely didn't look like Elizabeth Taylor, uh, you know, or whatever that Moses movie that came out a couple years was like. Um, they certainly weren't European or, or light skinned or white. But honestly, even people in a lot of the Greco-Roman world weren't white either. They were like, you know, brown people, uh, which was uh, which was going back to the question. The majority of the people who were present at Nicaea were from were from like kind of the Greek speaking world in what's now known as Turkey or Greece or Egypt. Um, or also the Middle East, uh, Palestine, Syria. So it was from that world. So it was a bunch of brown people in, in the Council of Nicaea. There was probably very few white people, and there were probably also very few black people. Now, there, there, you know, there probably uh, would have been a few, uh, especially, you know, there could, there is likely could have been, but there were a lot of Egypt, Egyptians present. Um, but also there was, there was one Persian person present. That's another important thing, is that, again, the Persians, they had their own church going, they had their own church hierarchy. And they were also they were also uh, a major part of the early church that we don't talk about because it's not Western history, but that's a that's Eastern history. That's you know Persian Iranian history. That's also important. There was actually one delegate to uh, to Nicaea who was from Persia. Uh, you know, one of the bishops in Persia who was present. But Persia is an interesting an interesting case study to just show how much the extent to which Constantine and the Roman Empire and all the attempts that you know the that you know european white people have made starting at this first pivotal point up until today of trying to control christianity that even though they're all there still is those efforts it doesn't succeed and it still doesn't it's not the end of the story because um you know nicaea and Constantine was like well, we're going to make this definitive answer uh on a belief that the church has already held both in africa and in the middle east and in, and in europe and so um but again uh, even though it's supposed to be this definitive statement, the Nicene Creed, right? The you know the, the idea that we believe in one God and that Jesus is you know homoousios, he's the same essence. That creed was not accepted in Persia until almost a century later. 
So even though this was the first ecumenical council, well, it was maybe the first Roman ecumenical council, but that really had no effect in Persia. And Persia had its first large ecumenical council too, which was also uh, convened under the auspices of the Persian Shah. And it was, uh, it was also overseen though by a Christian bishop named Isaac. So it's called the Synod of Isaac and that happened in the year 410. And that's actually seen as to be the beginning of the you know really hierarchy and the structure of the Persian church but we don't even talk about that and so they decided freely they didn't have to because Constantine had no authority in Persia and in fact um, the fact that Constantine had tried to start to westernize and Romanize Christianity that actually made situations harder for Persian Christians because now you know again Christians have been in Persia since uh, early stage since like the second century um, so long, again, and they were believing Jesus was God too. So and these were brown Middle Eastern Persian Christians that you know that believed in the Word and believed in early Christian teachers that Jesus was God. And so, uh, so for them, it wasn't no big deal. There was no Arius over there teaching that he wasn't God, especially because they were in the minority uh, in the in the Persian Empire under a Zoroastrian uh, you know uh, government. But they had lived freely before the fourth century, before the Council of Nicaea, and before Constantine decided to become a Christian. They weren't persecuted. So while or Western or white uh, Roman Christians were persecuting Christians in the Roman Empire for believing in Jesus and believing that he was God. Uh, in Persian Empire, they were free. They were living free. They weren't persecuted by the Persian government. In fact, some Roman Christians went to Persia to escape uh, and to live, and they lived more freely in the Roman Empire. I mean, in the Persian Empire, excuse me. And so they, now the Synod of Isaac in Persia in 410, they embraced the Council of Nicaea, but they also changed the wording of it and they, to fit it more into their East Syriac speaking Persian context. So that just is a way of showing that they, they were gonna embrace on their own terms uh, this, this creed that had become popular. And so it wasn't forced on them, but they embraced it themselves and even altered it a bit to fit their context. And so, um, so again, based on all of that, the fact that Christians uh, you know, already believed in it and, and continue to after the fact, Constantine didn't, wasn't the one controlling that. But, but anyway, get back to the other question is that, um, you know who was president at at the council uh, again the 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 primary leadership in the church even though it was called by Constantine and he was the one that was you know kind of trying to put his stamp all over it uh, you know a lot of the presiding Christian leadership the main bishops were that were in charge of that were the ones from Antioch Jerusalem and Alexandria Athanasius of Alexandria so these were Egyptian Palestinian and Syrian bishops who were the ones in charge again these are brown people Right, uh, you know, these are these were brown, uh, Middle Eastern and North African Christians who were the ones running the show. Just like there were very few, I mean, it's you know, it's possible there was a lot of Egyptians there. It, it could have even been possible that there may have been, you know, maybe Ethiopians or Nubians present. I don't know of any, you know, record of that. Um, but uh, but also there was there was like I think maybe one, uh, just like there was one Persian bishop attested who was in attendance. I think there was also one Gothic uh, bishop who was in attendance because this is at an early stage where Christianity was not really present that much in what we now call Europe uh, and all that. Um, and so, so the you know being in Nicaea, it was largely people from North Egypt, from North Africa, uh, Antioch, Middle East, Palestine, Syria, what well, you know uh, Anatolia or Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey, and then Greece. You know, mostly people were speaking Greek, but they had different sub languages, different sub ethnicities, and uh, and they were all brown people. They were not, you know, they were not white people, but there probably weren't that many black people either. It was brown people that were all in this part of the world that were largely at this council. But again, it's important to note that 
not decide this decision. And also it wasn't, it didn't even like have necessarily like any kind of controlling factor in the life of the church in the Persian empire, or at the same time, Christianity was developing in Ethiopia. That was not even in the Roman empire. So they, you know, they governed themselves and, and it was its own. And that's where you get into black African Christianity in Nubia and in Ethiopia uh, around the same time, which were not beholden to uh, the Roman Empire or Roman systems of church government or theology and developed it their own. But yet they also believed that Jesus was God. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I let you go and we do resources, there's one other question and we're going to be getting into this more uh, more broadly and in videos over the summer. We've already planned this out um, in the previous meeting, you and I. Um, but there's this idea that the exclusivity of of Christ wasn't something that was adopted um, all throughout church history. Can you speak to that? Because we discussed that uh, because here at Jew3, we obviously, as an apologetics organization, we, we affirm mm-hmm. that Jesus is the only way. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How can we address that issue from a historical perspective um, in, Christ- in church history? Uh, because I believe it's so vital uh, if we're going to contend for the faith um w- w- throughout church history what was the consensus about the exclusivity of Christ especially yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's, yeah oh yeah definitely i mean again as as a as a as a pastor uh and as you know uh somebody who also deeply affirms the the exclusivity of the truth of the gospel and that jesus is the only way which the word itself teaches so again i don't know where these folks are getting this stuff from because it's clear that the bible itself attest to the fact that Jesus said, I'm the only way, truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Um, And so this is something that early Christians were clear on and that they picked up on. uh, And as they were engaging, I mean, a lot of the early Christian apologists were engaging Greco-Roman philosophy and they were critiquing it, even though they were educated in it and in many ways a product of it. People like Justin Martyr, again, Tatian the Syrian, uh, who was, you know, he wrote a whole treatise on against the Greeks. And so they were they were uh, critiquing and challenging Greek philosophies that were saying, you know, that, uh, you know, we believed in Zeus and Jupiter and all that kind of stuff saying, you know, say, no, Jesus is the way. And so that early Christians were very clear, uh, were extremely clear that Jesus is is the only truth and not all this Greco-Roman stuff. And so they would engage and reason with them. But they, you know, early church, early Christians were extremely clear on this. And and that was no, and that was again, position because a lot of these people were from the Middle East and were from North Africa. And then, especially when Christianity starts to take on its own indigenous languages in Africa, um, in you know Coptic, Nubian, Ethiopic, though a lot of the, a lot of the church fathers there were were equally clear that I mean, Shenouda, Shenouda is the you know the greatest writer in the history of the Coptic Church. Wrote all in Coptic. And he's extremely clear. He he would he would he would argue against heretics and people who still practice Egyptian religion. Um, so again, you know, these, these these folks trying to go back to Egyptian religion. Well, in the in you know the third and fourth and fifth centuries going forward, Egyptians were mostly Christian, like Shenouda, and they were arguing against the you know the people who still practice Egyptian religions and telling them no, like we don't worship Ra or Horus or Isis, we worship Jesus Christ. And these were Egyptian Christians writing in the Egyptian language. 
Um, and it, one, one interesting thing is that a lot of the Egyptians who still practice the, you know, the, the indigenous religion and stuff were sometimes in the more Hellenized, you know, uh, Greek speaking context, not all the time, but, you know, a lot of the time, but the, you know, native Egyptian speaking uh, Egyptians were, were Christians who believe in Jesus. And that taught that he was the exclusive only way to the father. And they were trying to convert people. You know, they weren't down. Egyptians themselves. So you got these black folks today talking about, oh, I'm about to, you know, go back. I'm gonna be, I'm, I'm part of Kemet. I'm part of the, you know, indigenous Egyptian religion. Well, bro, go back and read Egyptian history from the three, four, five hundreds. Egyptians were believed in Jesus and they believed he was the only way, truth, and the life. And again, anything contrary to that in the early church was just was was immediately stamped out by the majority of early Christians in all parts of the world, Africans, Middle Easterns, Europeans, all those. And so I mean, one example would be Origen. And, or, you know, Origen, uh, uh, you know, he was a, a theologian who taught in the late third, early fourth, I mean, late second, early third century, uh, who operated in Egypt. Um, he wasn't Egyptian. He wasn't from there. But, um, you know, he had operated there and taught, but he also taught in a more a more universalistic uh, and he's one of the early examples also now he he didn't teach that jesus was was uh not god or that he he didn't teach that jesus was um a created being necessarily but he did subordinate the son to the father and so he would say that g origin would say that jesus was um you know he was slightly lower than the father was but he would not he would not have agreed with what arius said because arius which necessitated the Council of Nicaea. And Arius saying that Jesus was created. Origen wouldn't say Jesus was created, but he would say that he is eternally, uh, you know, existent with the Father, but that he's subordinate to him. And so for that reason, but also because of the reason that Origen taught that, you know, there's a final, you know, um, of all things, you know, the apocatastasis, that all things will be saved. And, uh, you know, um, that even the devil, you know, well, that was something that Origen taught. For those reasons, he was condemned at, in his own time. And again, he was condemned by, and uh, he was kicked out of his office as a teacher in Alexandria by the Alexandrian bishop, Demetrius. And so, and so again, even in moments in church history where people say these things that are contrary to the teachings of scripture, then the majority of Christians in Africa and in Egypt in particular reject them and say, no, that's not right. And so Origen was kicked out for saying, well, all, you know, people will be saved or, you know, um, and, you know, all that. And actually, really, that's that's different than even, uh, you know, he had like a universalistic perspective, but he didn't even uh, but he would have still affirmed that that was through Jesus, that that was through the logos. But this whole idea that we have nowadays of like, you know, there's multiple roads to salvation and it's not necessarily through Jesus. Honestly, that's a creation of white European and North American liberal theology, honestly. And that, uh, you know, and this, you know, and so if anything, uh, if, you know, people will say, because, you know, even as a, as a, as an evangelical, you know, or I mean, I don't necessarily use that word, but, but as a Bible believing Christian, <laughs> put it like that, somebody that believes in the authority of the word and that Jesus is Lord, that he dies and rose again, that he's the only way, truth and the life. Uh, and, you know, and that all, you know, everybody that, that he's the only name of the heaven which people will be saved as a person who believes that. But as a scholar, as an African-American and as a scholar, uh, and I know we're going to be getting into this, too, you know, you know, some of the stuff we're working on with you three. It's very hard to be in that space because most, you know, most African-American uh, scholars of religion, people who are on the doctoral level in academia, most of them are more liberal on that on that view. They don't believe that. And they and I've even had people literally and, you know, 
uh, kind of, you know, side conversations, things like that, make these kind of comments like, oh, you on the plantation or, you know, you're, you know, that you're, that's, you know, and they're saying the same things that some of these people on the streets are saying, that's the white man's idea, that's the white man's theology. But it's like, no, if anything, if, you know, you're, you're taking on like a very like kind of white man's theology because the idea that, you know, there's all these different truths and your truth is your truth, but there's no, that's, an idea that's really a modern, like kind of a postmodern idea that was invented by white liberals that, you know, a lot of people, you know, will just uh, imbibe that. But again, it's an idea that is not present uh, in the majority of Christian history, especially in the early church and especially in Africa, that that's an idea that was, you know, clearly rejected and quickly rejected by the majority of African Christians like Shenouda and like uh, Demetrius and like Athanasius, like Cyril of Alexandria, Cyprian of Carthage, uh, Tertullian, all of these African Christians clearly believed and they didn't need a Constantine to say it for them. Uh, or they didn't need a Council of Nicaea necessarily to even say it for them. They already clearly believed and continue to believe. Uh, even after Constantine, let's not forget, after the Council of Nicaea, into exile because he still kept affirming the belief that Jesus was God. But, you know, then after Constantine, you had Constantius, uh, Emperor Constantius, who was Arian, and he didn't believe that Jesus was God. And so he tried to impose that belief in Ethiopia. And that was right around the time Ethiopia had become Christian under King Azana. But Ethiopia said, no, we're not down with that. These were black African Christians, a black African Christian kingdom who were after the just after the Council of Nicaea, they, the Roman Christian, the Roman emperor was trying to impose the belief on African Christians that Jesus was not God. And the Ethiopian church said, no, we believe that Jesus is God. That's been their belief since day one. And so, and then Athanasius was being sent into exile. Then you had Julian, who was emperor in the 360s. He was, he was trying to take Rome back to paganism. So Rome actually didn't become officially a Christian state until almost the fourth century, you know, I think, uh, like until much, much later after Nicaea. And so again, the you know the Council of Nicaea and Constantine didn't even have that much effect on. I mean, they did, but at the same, in some also other ways they didn't. In the sense that you know African Christians and and early Christians in all over the world uh, had mostly believed that Jesus is God and that He's the only way. You know, kind of what the Roman government was trying to do. I think that's that's powerful and helpful to our 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 viewers and our listeners. What resources would you recommend for people who want to study further? I know we'll be we'll be cranking out more resources um, throughout mm -hmm. the summer, but for those who want to just grab a book on this and delve deeper into this, what resources and books would you recommend? Um, and then how can people get in contact with you on social media? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I would say, uh, you know, one book that comes to mind, uh, I mean, is for understanding, especially in Africa and I mean, especially in Egypt, for how the, the, you know, the role that Egyptian Christians played in defending the belief that Jesus is God um, and, and, you know, uh, and just how that that was really a part of the Egyptian church was uh, is called the early Coptic papacy by Stephen Davis. Um, and so that that especially the beginning part of that, the opening of that book. I think the first couple of chapters talks a lot about how, because again, the uh, even though Constantine was trying to convene the council, the major players and the major theologians defending orthodoxy were Egyptian. Athanasius was the chief among them. And so uh, that just kind of gives a good introduction for how the Egyptian church was at the center of defending the, um, you know, the belief that Jesus is God and rejecting one of its own priests uh, that who was saying that, you know, Jesus wasn't God. So I think that's a good book, Early Coptic Papacy. Also, again, I mentioned earlier, but Peter Brown's book, The Rise of Western Christendom, I think that's a very sobering 
uh, but also very good look at, again, the way in which the Christianization of Rome was in many ways <laughs> uh, kind of a, you know, at the ways in which Roman culture and Roman identity and Roman uh, just, yeah, Roman identity was really kind of playing into and affecting and kind of in some ways co-opting the Christian tradition and just how in Constantine and his reforms and all that he tried to do. I mentioned Timothy Barnes, uh, his book, Eusebius and Constantine. Again, that shows kind of uh, the way in which, um, the way in which, uh, you know, Eusebius as a church historian kind of props up uh, Constantine, you know, as a, um, you know, as this Christian patron and all that kind of stuff. But again, from the other side, one of my, and this, you know, um, I, I have a paper that I wrote. If anybody wants to hit me up on social media, I, I'll send it to you. I'm gonna try to turn it into an article. Um, but again, it's on the way in which Christians who were not in the Western world, Christians of color, uh, who didn't, you know, who, you know, who were speaking in, in you know, in indigenous languages, or Christian believed Jesus was God, did not necessarily, so I mentioned that, but Ephraim the Syrian is an is a early church father who believed strongly, he argued against Arianism, and he believed strongly that Jesus was God, but he did not like that word homoousios, and he rejected that. And I think it's a really good example of how non-Western Christians, both then and today, uh, can we can, we can uh, affirm biblical theology, but in our own voice, in our own way, in our own culture, in our own language. Uh, it doesn't have to be imposed by Western Christians. And so he, there's a book, uh, a friend of mine who teaches at St. Louis University, uh, recently published a translation of Ephraim's Hymns on Faith. He briefly touches on this issue in like a footnote, but I've expanded that into a, a, a paper that I just presented at an early Christian conference. And so I can send it to him. I'm going to try to turn an article, but it just gets into that, that dynamic of how, and I think it's a really good example and a really good um, thing that people should know that the Council of Nicaea and even the terminology that it created was not embraced everywhere by Christians who still believed, uh, you know, that Jesus is God and were very, you know, orthodox and biblical in their faith, but they just didn't feel the need. And I, cause I think that can help when you have people coming at you saying, you know, Christianity is a white man's religion. It was created at, Cal at, Cal at, at Nicaea and by Constantine. Uh, we say, no, like, you know, there was other Christians who didn't even buy into Constantine or buy into Nicaea necessarily, but they still said, you know, similar ideas. They just said it in their own way. So I think those would be some good books um, that, you know, so again, if you, uh, but if, you know, those are some that come to mind immediately, but definitely hit me up. If there's any more questions or follow up about that, um, you know, you can, uh, you know, hit me on Facebook, Vince Bantu, and um, also, you know, feel free to shoot me an email, uh, uh, vince.bantu at covenantseminary.edu. And I'd you know, love to keep chopping it up. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Vince. This has been a great time. And uh, we will have you, you will be doing more stuff because uh, you're you're with Jew3 all the time. <laughs> We're going right. to the tour and all that stuff. So you're, you're, you're a part of Jew3, the team. So <laughs> you, you'll be mm -hmm. on here. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com or you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play by searching the Jew3 Project. You can also get better equipped with our Bible Engagement app by searching the App Store, Google Play, or Apple App Store by searching the Jude 3 Project, and that will help you better engage scripture on a daily basis. If you would like to donate to the Jude 3 Project, go to jude3project.com and hit the Donate tab. In addition, you can follow us on, in, on social media, 
by searching at Ju3Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, here at the Ju3Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.